right, welcome to From Red to Black, a Homicide Life on the Streets podcast. Uh, my name is Joe Moore. I'm Daniel Tronomas. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the pilot episode of the TV show Homicide Life on the Streets, uh, Life on the Street, singular, um, which was called Gone for Good, good with an E. Correct. Um, and yeah, season one, episode one. You know, Joe, this originally aired... <clears throat> After Super Bowl 20, mm, 20 something, I forget, but it was 24 years ago mm. that this debuted. And then they repeated it in its regular time slot, which I believe might have been a Thursday or Friday night, but I forget. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this was probably a great slot for any show coming up, being after the Super Bowl. You would think, like, there's probably a lot of promotion uh, going oh, yeah. into it. But um, uh, for people that. Are familiar with the series, um, they'll know that uh, this show never really found an audience. Correct. Or never found the audience that I would say it deserves. Right. Um, which kind of, I guess, leads us to like, why are we doing a podcast about this show? You know, I was going to say the same thing. We should explain why. Because I think we both feel it is one of the greatest television shows of all time. It's certainly in my probably top five. Yeah. Um, it's, it holds up, again, after 24 years, it's just as disturbing and just as funny. The actors in it, it's got a cast that is just excellent. It's right. a really great cast. And um, as we said today, we'll talk about it more, it's incredibly funny as well. And um, yeah, it really does not get the recognition it should. Yeah, I think that makes me like it even more. If that makes sense, is that I know that enough, like it does not get the, uh, well, well, all right. So I was just going to say that it doesn't get the uh, acclaim that it deserves. Right. But you could argue that it did. I mean, this episode won an Emmy. Right. The, right. the pilot episode of Homicide won an Emmy. So people were definitely aware of it, but I guess it never found an audience that matched how well I think it's executed. And, and you know, it was an unusual detective cop show for its time. We don't see the murders. There's no gunplay, at least in the early seasons. There's no car chases. You always come when the people are dead. Yeah. So it was a different cop show. It wasn't anything about the violence. You know, it was... It was and as we said today, it really wasn't about the cases. It was really about the detectives. Yeah. Yeah, It's uh, and I think the actors... Um, Kind of, uh, it makes sense that this is a character-driven show. They have such talented actors uh, that handle um, their roles, and it's funny to think that that format of not really showing the violence isn't that what like is all the rage now? Like all the right. SVU shows right, and all right. these kind of procedural. I feel like what makes this so enjoyable is how gritty it is. So there's an element to the production, like you were saying, they use just handheld cameras. Correct, which, for everything. Which provides a certain feel for the show. It makes, right. you, makes you feel like you're, it's a little like unhinged and difficult to watch even sometimes. Um, the lighting in the the uh, the office, is the, what is it, the precinct? The precinct. Yeah. It feels like lived in. Yes. And so worn out and not lavish at all. Correct. And it's like, well, there's there doesn't there don't seem to be any perks or any joyfulness no. to this job. 
And again, Joe, I think maybe one of the reasons brought by the show was it is a little bleak. There aren't any pretty people right now in the show. Um, it's a little dark. There's that jump cutting. And people were definitely, I remember reading the reviews, people were put off by the weird editing, yeah, the handheld camera, the jump cuts, the zwing sound they make. Yeah. Um, and if any of you have listened to the show, you know what I mean by the zwing sound. Yeah, there was one, I think. I think there was only one. And them repeating, having people repeat the same thing over, they just go back and they loop someone saying the same thing. Right. Uh, like in this episode, Munch and Bolander, they find the the person who killed the uh, the case that was referenced in the title of the episode, Jenny yes, Good. Yes, Jenny Good. And he was drinking, and he keeps saying that over and over and right. over again to the point where you think, oh, they made a mistake in editing this. Right. And then it keeps going and it keeps going, just kind of driving that yep. that home. Yep. Um, the other, the the swing in this episode is when that... Um, uh, the guy that Pembleton interviews at the end. Right. Uh, he's going to his car, and then the, the lights turn on. Right. And he gets arrested. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of jumping around. Um, so, we are... I, I just wanted to say, let, let, let's go. Let's step back a little yeah, bit. right. The show was based on a book written by someone Joe and I admire greatly, who was also involved in one of the, maybe, I think, the greatest television show ever, The Wire, that Simon... He wrote the book called Homicide, um, a, a Year on the Life of the Killing Streets, uh, about Baltimore homicides. I think he kind of embedded himself um, in the... And while there's no detectives exactly like the real ones that the book is based on, the book is you know nonfiction, some of these stories are from there. Yeah. But very loosely. Right. Very loosely. Uh, you can definitely feel that. Like, you can feel the parts that are like, oh, this must be something... Like, the, the people that lie, like, the lies that you hear from them... Yes. ...feel so, um, like, bonehead, uh, um, you know, murderer, bonehead... Just like, how would you think that the, anyone would believe what you're telling them? And isn't it Frank? Is it Frank who says crime makes you stupid? Yeah, right. So, yeah. Right. Um, These are not slick... Criminals that we're used to from other TV shows, they're kind of dumb for the most part. Yeah, wily maybe, but just dumb. Yeah, which again, like, adds to that just how oppressive this job is. Yes, that like they know. I mean, in a lot of these instances, they know exactly what they're talking about. They know they they just need the other person to kind of connect the dots for them. Right, and they just can't get that. Even in the case of uh, Jenny Good, again, when he's. Uh, when um, Munch and Bolin are talking to her parents, and they're saying they basically like undercut the investigation and telling people what the cops are looking for. Right. You know that level of like just stupidity. Right. That in that case is forgivable, and then that scene punctuated with that kid saying, "Are you they going to bring my mommy back?" Like, yeah, that was really uh, sad. And you know, it goes back to what we were saying before, before we started the podcast on the humor really struck me this time. Like you said, there's a lot of scenes. How many scenes? There's 31 uh, separate scenes. In and they're all short, and almost every one of them is punctuated by stuff that is just out loud funny. Yeah, right. I mean, it's not like a kind of a little joke. It's like a comedy almost. Right. 
And Joe and I were saying, why is that? And we were saying, well, you know, let's let's fast forward to the last murdered in the rain on the street covered by something. I mean, so depressing yeah. that maybe they felt they had to balance things out. Right. Like give you and 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 um, go back and say what you were telling me about the detectives themselves. Yeah, so I remember reading that David Simon was saying that there was this element of humor to the job uh, when he was writing his book and that uh, these people kind of expressed comedy in ways that are uh, not traditional. Uh, right. Gallows humor, dark humor. Yes. And and I would, what this show is doing, you know, we were saying how like, I wouldn't uh, call this show a comedy. Right. But for the number of jokes that are written in this script, like it, it's probably pretty close. Uh, if the material, the subject of the show, wasn't so not funny, right? It, it, it would rival the laughs in any half-hour sitcom yeah. when you think about it, and really funny stuff, funny right. situations, just absurd situations. And that that was so for the police officers that were actually doing this, that inspired the show. That humor was an important thing to just bring some levity to right. what would otherwise be an unbearable existence, just dealing with, like you said, the the scene with Adina. I mean, right. that's what their job is. Right. So without having the humor there, it becomes, you know, unbearable. And I probably the same with the TV show. In the way that a, de- a detective needs to approach their job with a certain perspective, this show has this comedic element to it. And, like, characters, like, Corsetti is fun. Right. Like, he's weird. Yeah. You know, like, yep. he doesn't seem like... Anyone who should party, right? He seems like a strange person. Well, remember, he couldn't sleep, and you think, well, it's probably because of a case. <laughs> no, it's about the Lincoln assassination. Which I would consider, for him, is a case. Like, right. he's trying to solve it, even though it's not up on the board. Right. I think even Lewis, like, jokes with him about that. And, and that continues, I know, for a few episodes. If my memory serves me correct, they go back close to the theater at one point, and, like, he just won't. Give it up. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. on his brain. Yeah, he is weird. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, Corsetti and Meldrick and, and their relationship. Because we get them, they're actually the first scene uh, that we right. see in the episode. That's right. Um, and uh, the uh, that scene, uh, of course, has the line, that's a problem with this job. It has nothing to do with life. Right. Which, again, is just kind of like a neat turn of phrase right. um, about what they're doing. Um, and and, and, and let, let me step back just a little, too. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you go ahead. I want to talk about Bayless. Let's continue on these two guys. Later. So they, in, in this episode are kind of supporting characters. Yes. They add a little uh, color, but we don't. We never really get, like, too... Uh, until later in the episode that I really... Like, I, I was asking myself, like, are these people co-workers or are they friends? Right. And that line seems, like, definitely blurry for almost all of these people. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I guess, and in the same way as any working environment, but specifically with what they do, you get to learn uh, so much about a person that they Correct. have these like relationships that go beyond just superficial, right? That you would consider friendship, but like I see a lot of animosity between Corsetti and Lewis. Yes, but there's animosity, there's admiration, but if you look at the scene when they're eating. They're, you know, especially G, he clearly likes all of them. Right, right. And there was some kind of, I don't want to say love, but there was some kind of fondness for each other. But, yeah, there is a tremendous amount of jealousy. They're jealous of Frank. 
Yeah. They don't like what he, quote-unquote, gets away with. Right. Um, whether it's real or not. So, yeah, it's a very fine line of do they like each other? Are they jealous? It's all mixed in. It's like real life is. Yeah. And then, so, the, going back to the restaurant, later in the episode, they're out to eat again. And Kay Howard is reading a letter or a memo that Corsetti's going <laughs> right. to file right. against Meldrick Lewis. Called him a fat <laughs> Italian salami head. <laughs> Yeah, which is a great line, uh, and probably offensive. Right. But uh, Corsetti's going to file a, a grievance with... Right. Um, yeah, so... Uh, and even in that scene, like, you almost feel like, whoa, Lewis could get in trouble for this. Right. You're like, not sure if it's real or not. And I'm still not sure. Yeah. I kind of think he isn't. Yeah, that line by saying, like, what what makes you think this is a joke? Right. When Lewis right. says, oh, he takes this stuff seriously, he won't realize right. the joke. I'll be in trouble. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, which kind of, again, like, that is the type of, if that is a joke, not a joke, then, like, obviously their relationship, which seems very personal, like, they seem to know each other really well, is totally underscored by this, like, you know. Right. uh, And he says to Frank, this over what you're saying. Yeah. And and Meldrick just laughs. Yeah, right. Blows him off. (laughs) Yeah. That's, um... That's a really fun, uh, fun scene and a fun dining. Um, also, in that scene is uh, Kay Howard and Bo Felton, partners for those characters. Yeah, it, it's funny because we said, if you noticed, and we have to talk about the board, and that's the name of our podcast, right? From Red to Black, because when they solve, when it, when someone's mom up on the board in red, when it's solved, it goes to black. One thing I used to get confused about: it doesn't mean it went to trial. The person could be found innocent down the that in their minds, they've said this person is the guilty person. They've got a confession or, or proved it. But if you notice, when they show the board, and they show it a lot, Kay Howard, every one of her cases is soft. Yeah. So as you were saying before we started the podcast, bows are not. And when he's deciding whether to answer the phone because you probably if you watch the show you get it when you answer the phone you are Mary when the call comes in for that case and um I I I don't know enough about them at this point to say what their relationship is I mean I do moving forward right but after this episode I really wouldn't know so I you were talking about and best in Corsetti and Meldrick is that like Close to love that they another. I don't know that I get that sense of love towards Bo Felton. Agree. Yeah. Like, and I, I don't even know exactly what it is. There's something about the way that the characters kind of respond or treat him, the way that he treats um, Pembleton. He doesn't have that same like re- like reverence for right. him. I guess. Right. Respect. Yeah. And then that scene in the the garage between the two of them where they're looking for the cars. Right. Um, you know, it kind of seems like Frank calls that out um, and draws attention to that, like, I don't know if the word is distrust, but they just don't appreciate. And it felt probably is pretty bad at his job, too. Yeah, and I, I think that's part of it. He's not good at his job. He complains a lot. Um, I don't think he's that bright. Yeah, I... I I think he's, I mean, just from my first impression would be he'd be the weakest guy in the squad. Right. 
I don't know that yet, but I'm kind of getting that feeling already that he is not that great. Yeah, and it kind of ties into what we're talking about, like the fact that they seem to like each other, they seem to be friends, uh, but are they really? It would make sense that in that relationship, if you just being bad at your job is enough to right. isolate you from everyone else. Agree. Um, yeah, Bo Felton gives me a, a weird, a weird vibe. And, and again, I you know, the actor is playing it that way. Clearly, it's written that way. Yeah, I just don't see him as being a brilliant detective. I mean, we already, we already know that Frank Pambleton's the brilliant one. But the other guys show flashes of brilliance. We right. know Kay is good. Munch does something good. Bo Landry, Bo is just, he's complaining. And Frank almost calls him, he does call him a racist. Yeah. Right? And he's like, I know what you're really thinking. And it's not, it's, 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 it's not a joke. I mean, I didn't laugh at that part. I'm yeah. like, Frank really thinks that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that, um, and I think that also is contrasted with his partner, Kay, who you pointed out, all black under her name. Yes. So she is also maybe brilliant. Uh, Bo uh, very cheaply kind of chalks it up to the luck of the draw. Right. And that's where we first kind of see their dynamic come out is... He, the their phone is ringing on their desk, and he's debating whether he should pick it up, whether it'll be a an easy open shut case, or right. or whether it'll be a, a dunker, as they call it, yeah, a dunker or a whodunit, which is a really tough case, yeah. And so she picks it up, and it turns out to be I mean, it's resolved by the end right. of the episode. Right. Um, and, and by the way, I just thought of another thing. G says to him, "A tie is the dress code." Part of the reason we don't respect him as viewers is he looks sloppy. Yeah, right. He doesn't have a tie on. Yeah. He's not like the other people, and he does. He And G is right. A tie is the dress code, and you can tell he's not going to wear a tie. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's very, that's that's part of his character is he's like lazy, sloppy, I don't know. Yeah. And he doesn't have like that idiosyncratic, like everything he talks about is in the present or something a reflection of what's happening currently. Yes. He doesn't have this kind of like reflective quality that uh, all the other detectives seem to have that make them like so much fun. Right. You know? Agree. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, Louis uh, Corsetti. We got uh, Bo uh, Felton and Kay Howard. And Kay Howard, of course, um, and we'll get back to that because that's something that kind of grows through the this, this season, but... She's also kind of, like, incredible at her job. Right. Uh, and doesn't get that same, you know, maybe, like, as a little bit more of a workhorse, like, puts her head down and does the job. Right. Rather than pontificate in the way that Frank Pembleton does to draw attention to right. how great we, he is. We really don't see her engaging in those extraneous conversations that they all do about stuff that's got nothing to do with the job. Right. But, so, but... But again, it didn't concentrate by Melissa Leo, yeah. who arguably is the, the most famous person, most successful actor to come out of that show. Yeah. I mean, she has won, I believe, a couple of Oscars, yeah. at least one. Yeah. I mean, so she's gone on to bigger and better things after the show. Yeah. Yeah, she's, uh, she's awesome. And, um, and kind of like in that way, she's a character foil for Pembleton. Yes. And that like he is revered as like the all-star home run hitter, but she's apparently very 
competent and good at what she's doing Correct. as well. Correct. Um, so that brings us to uh, Detective Munch. <laughs> Detective Munch. Munch. And uh, Bolander. Um, who, who really, like, they're almost the stars of this episode. I mean, the, their case is in the title. Agreed. And they're the ones that we see kind of the, the story arc go from, you know, beginning to end on a, on a case. And Totally agree. And probably the most dynamic of their relationships uh, that we get in this episode. And, and, that, and going back to whether they like each other, the partners, to me, you can clearly see that they, re- I think, they really like each other. Yeah. I think, you know... Bolander is pushing him to solve that case. He has one of the great lines about, you know, we have to speak for the murdered Jenny Good. We're her voice. Someone has to speak for her. That is a theme of the show, by the way, right? They're right. speaking for the dead. But clearly there's love between those two guys. I yeah. mean, even though they fight and bicker, and they will continue to fight and bicker, there is respect on both Sides, yeah, and and Detective Munch, like easily, the, like the most sarcastic character oh, yeah. on the show. Oh yeah, I, maybe not even easily. I shouldn't say easily, <laughs> but he definitely is up there. Um, and of course, Richard Belzer being a comedian, like I, I'm sure when he's talking about how the Irish potato famine, yes, and how they they're an island and they should have fished. I'm sure that came from an act. You know, right. like that sounds like a stand up joke, but uh, and, and you know that character has been is still alive as we speak. 24 years later, he's still playing John Munch. He's been in, I don't know how many shows as John Munch, including The X-Files, Law and Order, etc. So that character has made his whole career. Yeah. It's incredible. No other character's ever done that that I know of. Yeah. Well, maybe after we finish all these episodes, we'll do a podcast just on Detective Munch. I, I haven't seen... I've just little splashes here and there, but I, I haven't followed the shows that he's been on. Uh, yeah. But that is so weird that that it, character, bizarre. as its person, like as a being, exists in so many different shows. Like, kind of a through line. Um, he, he has that whole great scene with the suspect about, I'm not Montel Williams. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> and he, you know, he's looking for respect. He wants to be Larry King. And he will repeat that line in the, in a, I don't know if it's Homicide or another show where he says, I'm not Geraldo Rivera, I think, or something. He kind of updates it. Yeah. But that whole scene was hysterical. Yeah. Uh, the way he treated, and he definitely has a disdain, I think, for the suspects. I mean, he kind of gets angry. Yeah. Why? Them. I don't know. To me, it seems like they're more of an inconvenience for him. Okay. And I think the people that we see, like, more than, like, any kind of, um, like, altruistic bend to solve murders, I think it's just, like, they are in his way. You're right. You know, like, it's so... a good point. In the same way that if he was working a forklift and there was a car parked there... Right. Like, he, would, he would have the same attitude towards that car as he right. does towards the suspects and, the, and even some of the victims, too. Um, everyone that he encounters... Almost everyone in this episode is lying to him. Yes. And he, he knows. He just needs to, them to connect the dots for him. Right. He knows what he wants from them, and just no one's willing to give it. Right. Um, which I I can imagine makes life so frustrating for these characters, but for him kind of like adds to that sarcastic bend that he has. Yes. Um, and sarcasm would be his main yeah. trait. I mean, he is. He's always sarcastic. Um. 
and and he he will continue to deliver some of the funniest lines yeah, in the show. He has the best line in the show, Definitely. for sure. Um, which is like, <laughs> we'll get to that. And I did see him do stand-up comedy, by the way, in New York City. Oh, really? Richard Belzer, and he was hysterical. He was a really, really talented stand-up comedian. I, I, I bet he still performs. I mean, why not? Um, I never I never hear him doing it, but yeah, maybe he does. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's uh, well. Talk about oh, yeah, well, talk about uh, uh, Bolander a little bit. Yeah. So he's uh, his role in this episode is you don't really see him fully to some of the other characters. Agree. He's really sort of just prodding Munch. Along Correct. Correct. And pushing him uh, in a way that seems really antagonistic. Like he seems yes. like like um, you know. Again, this this show um, is really about these complex characters and the kind of their complex relationships with one another, but um, it doesn't seem like it's coming from a place of love. No, that he's te- that he's like keeps bringing up her name. Yes, and as the secondary, your job isn't to mock the primary. Right, it's to help. But in his way, he is because yeah. he knows John Munch so well. He knows how to get to him. So Munch stays up all night to pull those photos, which leads him to cracking the case yeah. because of the guilt trip that his partner lays on. And that's another one of those like very subtle, weird edits on this show. When he's looking through the pictures, they cut um, like three or four shots in a row of him taking a, a one of the pictures and putting it in the back of the stack. Right. And then the card or the picture on top being the same guy three right, times. You're right. I didn't even notice that, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, and it, so it just kind of drives home like how hopeless this task could feel. Right. Um, and yeah, you don't really like pick up on pick up on it until you know you see it like the third time. And you're like, wait, that's the same face. Right. That it's been all the other times. So I I can't wait to get more into the life of Bolander because yeah. he is a great character like like you said you wouldn't know it from this episode yet because he's kind of just there as a vehicle for munch but i can't wait to see him further yeah in the show. yeah um do you think is he being mean to detective munch I, I i don't think so no no i think it's all his motives are good yeah. Let's put it that way. And is the idea there that like that Munch had left this case go for so long? Because like that seems to be something that he, um, when they oh he's saying that uh, Bolander is saying that Munch should have pulled the pictures earlier. Correct. And that's why he stays up all night doing it. Right. And then when they go and visit the family, they say, "Well, we haven't heard from you in three months." Right. So I wonder, was that like? Has this been going on for three months? Or is this like now? We don't know. Yeah. 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 It sounds like he dropped the case. Like you said, maybe they called it a suicide or something. And Bolander just won't let it go. Going back to the game, we speak for the dead. Yeah. Munch, you're a detective. This is what you do. Yeah. You got to put this one down. Yeah. And that, again, is what the episode is named after. was the good case. Gone for good. Gone for good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of other characters, what are we missing here? I think we've covered pretty much everyone except for uh, G. Um, and, and, of course, we haven't covered uh, Bayless. Bayless right? and Pendleton. We'll, we'll leave that for last. Yeah. So, what about G? What What are your impressions about G so far? <laughs> uh, 
great introduction uh, through our, our <laughs> audience surrogate of Tim Bayless. Right, Tim? Yeah, Tim, Tim, Tim Bayless. Bayless. Going through the uh, going through the office looking for uh, Giardelli. Of course, it was squat <laughs> Italian guy, right. and of, it's Yaf at Kodo. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, it, well, I guess he's defied. He's trying to put Bayless with Kay Howard. Yes. Which seems like, if, if you're looking at the board, a good move. Makes sense. Yeah, she's the one right. with the most cases cleared. Right, um, good influence on him. And, of course, uh, Bayless eventually, uh, Kay kind of pushes Bayless off on yes on Pembleton, which it seems like all parties are happy with that. Yes. Um, uh, Bo wouldn't want to be with Pembleton no. and vice versa. No. And Kay, apparently, in her mind, a new guy is worse than Bo Felton. Right. Which, to me, seems odd. But, you know, really, I don't think we saw a lot of G in this show. I mean, we saw him a little. Yeah. I mean, I know him because we've watched the show, we've watched every episode, but I would say from this episode, he kind of seems like a decent guy, likes his crew... Um, but I don't think you know enough about him yet. Right. You know, obviously he's rooting Frank on, come on. But from this episode, um, we don't get a whole lot about, uh, Lieutenant Giardello. No. We don't get a real feel of who he is. He, he has no characters that he's playing off of. Correct. In the same way that ever, all the other people have a partner. Right. Uh, we just kind of get a sense that he's like an authority figure there. Right. Is he... Do you get his job by being the best detective? I I don't know. You would think there's some political things you'd have to do. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I don't know if and I don't want to give away the rest of the series. I don't know if you ever find out if he was any good. Yeah, you know, as a detective. Right. I know there's a couple instances where he talks about specific cases, but I don't. I don't get. I guess that what I'm saying is that respect for him. Is it? Uh, that I, I do sense, uh, just in the little bit that he's in this episode, is it because of his like worth ec- work ethic or who he is, or is it just the rank? I don't know. Although, you know, um, Bo Felton not not wearing the tie after being told to several times, what does that say? Yeah, that they're not paying attention. <laughs> yeah, in, in addition to Bo and his tie... Um, he also uh, is trying to put the new guy with Kay. Right. And uh, he gets kind of circumvented, his order is circumvented right. in that too. So, yeah, it, I guess two things that we kind of see from that. One, maybe they don't respect him right. uh, as much as we would expect that they would. Right. Um, but two, maybe he has enough respect for them that he gives them that much room. Correct. And we'll find out as we go along what what the real deal is but yeah. yeah it's one of those two things yeah and then um so that brings us to our last uh two but characters not, but not least yeah no certainly <laughs> certainly opposite of least most or two most characters uh frank pembleton and uh tim, tim. bayless yep um who again tim bayless in this episode he's being introduced to the office in the same way that we are we're Correct. following his journey along a great writer's device so they don't have to say why are they explaining things. Well, Tim doesn't know either do we. So they explain about the board and the fishbowl and the box. Yeah, and they make him 
like so helpless in the beginning, right? Where he doesn't he doesn't know what room he's in, right? He has no desk, yeah. Just, he doesn't know who the lieutenant is. Just carrying a like that brown box, like he right. can't look like anything more than a schlep, like with right. that. Um, so yeah, and and then of course uh, Frank is the only character I think that's introduced by name without seeing him. So they're You're talking right. about You're Frank, right. Frank Pembleton when they're out to eat. That's correct. And kind of like taking digs at him. Yes. Uh, and and that he's probably almost like mythic. The way he's the prima donna, doesn't have a partner, and G is kind of like apologetic in a way, like he doesn't have a partner. He is defended about his tie by uh, Meldrick Lewis, and I think he has another great line to Bo Felton. He said, it's like you having a brain, picture of a brain on your tie. Yeah. Which, again, is another dig at, at Bo. Yeah. But, um, yeah, for, you're right. That's a good point. Frank is, you're introduced to Frank without seeing him. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you get this, like, this air that, that he kind of, that character gives out and will continue to give out. Um, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. But, Joe, what struck me, and I hadn't seen this episode in a while, was... How mean Frank is. Yeah. I mean, he is not a likable person. Yeah. He's he's mean. Yeah. Even in He's a jerk. With every person he talks to, even his conversation with G. Yes. He's kind of saying, like, I hear what you're telling me, but no, I'm not right. going to do right. it. Um Yeah, he is he is definitely um angry and uh, a lone wolf. Yes. For sure. Um, doesn't seem to have the same attitude as everyone else, right. and knows it. Like, yes. he carries himself like he knows he's different than them. Agree. And yet, when he was in the box, and and this will become a hallmark of oh, the yeah. show, by the way, seeing Frank in the box. He is charming. He smiles. He knows just what to do. He is in his element, and it's funny when G's watching him. You know that G has seen this a hundred times before. Right. He's like, yep, Frank, we need this one. But you know, like, G is like this guy. Right. Frank, this is not a difficult one. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's cheering it on like it's a like a baseball game or right. something. Like he, right. And you know your stud closer's coming in. Right. You're you up know, by You know he's going to win. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, well, remember what he says to Bayless. This was another great line. He says, are we going to interrogate the suspect in the box? And what does he say, Joe? He goes, it's not interrogation. It's, it's you remember? A, a salesmanship, sales That's sales correct. Or something? It's salesmanship. Yeah. And that's what he does. The way he, he's not, he doesn't interrogate the guy. Right. He has his own little style. He kind of ignores what the guy's saying. Just sign off on these things throws in some things that aren't true, which, by the way, police are allowed to do by law. They can lie to you. So when they say, when he says that... Strang- he was strangled strang- more in a uh, coroner's report. Right, which, which wasn't true, they can lie to you. Yeah. So you have to be very careful if, in case you ever get... Yeah, listener, job. dear listener. Yes. <laughs> if you're ever in the box, don't say anything. But he, he makes, he reads the, has the... Def- uh, well, I won't say defendant but that's not the word he has the punk in the box with him read his Miranda rights himself yes and then sign it in the, the same like uh, flair of like the delivery person just like hey I need someone to sign for right. this thing right um, yeah he, he and he 
kind of like normalizes what's happening for him and makes it feel like just a streamlined process. And then through that, you know, then you kind of see that meanness. When he asks for a lawyer, yes. and he just slams on the right, table. Right. Um, and yeah, that kind of like, uh, you see that turn in him. And uh, yeah, the way that he kind of leads him to, into confessing without confessing. Right. But gets all the pieces that he needs in order to make it all yeah. fall you, down. You, you, you can see that this guy, you do not want to be in the box with this guy. If you're guilty, you do not want to be in the box with him. He will make you say you did it. Yeah. And another, like, really, like, uh, building in this mythology of that character and, and, like, the sage wisdom that he has... That if rule number four of the box <laughs> yes. is if... if uh, He the, said if a, if a guilty man is left alone in the box and falls asleep... Yeah. He's, I, I, well, just what I said. A guilty man left alone in the box will, will fall, fall asleep. asleep. <laughs> and he has some other... But all the rules. other ones seem to like con- contradict uh, yes, themselves. Right, so it's right. really just like, once you're in the box, you're guilty. <laughs> right. As far as he's concerned, like right. he's going to get what he needs from them. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that uh, just kind of like, again, that weird dislogic, I feel like, is meant to throw Bayless through a loop and also us, too. Yes. Um, and, and you know what was weird? There's a point where Bayless looks at Frank when he's interrogating this guy, and I said, he admires what he's doing, and I was wrong. Yeah. Because when the suspect is out, he says to Frank, you coerced him, you didn't let him have a lawyer. And Frank's like, no, no, I didn't. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? Yeah. And then he goes through his whole logic of don't, you know, by the time he gets sentenced, he'll only get a couple of years. Like, he got to break this guy. They like so delicately place the bricks of these characters that like it kind of felt good to see someone yell at Frank. Yes. Right. And yeah, in forty minutes of knowing these characters, to see Bayless stand up to him, right, was kind of like, ooh. Like, that's right. uh, unexpected. Because you get the feeling not many people stand up to Frank. They'll talk about him when he's not there. But when he's there, it's kind of, Even though Bo Felton and him went back and forth, I mean, there is begrudging respect for Frank. Yeah. It, but, like, even in that scene with Bo, like, did they go back and forth? Or did Frank just kind of unleash on Bo? Yeah, he did. He you kind know, of like, went... Yeah, he took a fit on him. Yeah. Right. Um... But yeah, and and then that's also just kind of like calls into uh, like a moral argument, which is what Frank did is a means to an end. Right? Is it is it morally appropriate? Right. And what is or what isn't? Now Frank knows that that person is guilty. Right. Um, and he just he knows that that person is going to lie. He even says that to Bale is something like you know he he did it. Yeah. So who cares how I made him confess? Right. And Bayless knows that he did it too. Right. But uh, is. You know, such a, a new uh, entity in this homicide uh, department that he's like so by the book, right? Um, you know that he's calling into question the tactics that Pembleton uses. That of course are what makes him. He he has not been hardened by the job yet. Yeah, which it brings us to the end of the episode, um, which is the Adina Watson case, uh, which carries through really the whole yeah. show to the very last episode. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and, and and it's funny when when the phone was ringing, and Frank is thinking about uh, Tim is thinking of picking it up. I said out loud, like, "Oh crap!" Yeah, right. I I don't want him to pick it up because he has no idea what this case is going to do to him. We do because we've seen all the shows, right. but it's like Tim, don't pick up 
the phone. Yeah. And it's I that's so strange because like there's there's no and even the way that Kay says to him, like, you want it? Pick right, it up. Right, right. Like there's no good thing that could be on the other end of that. You know what I mean? Right. right. Like uh so yeah, it's a a very Important moment in the life of uh, Tim Bayless's career. Important moment uh, for the show, for sure. Yes. And he gets called to this, uh, it's a murdered girl. Young uh, girl. Young girl in the street, right. in the rain, right. at night. As we said before, it's just, it's a horrible scene. Yeah. And you're just like, you just, it's just like, oh, what a horrible way to end the show. It's raining. He's down. getting getting thrown to the wolves. Right. 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 And you just, day. yeah, you just have a bad feeling about what's going to to yeah. happen it's going to be his baptism of of fire yeah. for sure well that's uh i guess that covers just about everything in the first yeah the only thing i wanted to say is if you feel compelled for whatever reason to contact joe or myself we do have an email set up it's called the email address is homicide box all one word at gmail com homicide box at gmail that sounds like a great like metal band homicide box right. but yeah shoot us an email if you have any uh, questions comments or anything like that suggestions uh, anything be sure to subscribe and leave a review of course everyone says that in a podcast because right. that helps or whatever um, let's uh, just before we kind of sign off officially here um, wh- who do you think uh, who's the MVP of this episode? And who who are you least wow. looking forward to going wow. forward? That you know what that's a really hard. There's you know, so many balls up in the air right now. You know what I I would still say Frank. Yeah. Because he stands out as the most memorable person, and I'll tell you, like Bo Felton is a guy I just don't yeah. want to know more about. Yeah, I would definitely say <laughs> Bo Felton for uh, my least. Uh, least looking forward to seeing again. But I would say my MVP is Detective John Munch closes his case, gets the deal done, and I, I think that Frank, even for how uh, how well he is um, uh, portrayed in the in the episode, I feel like he's also seems like maybe a little like immature, or like he has a lesson to be learned. Yeah, uh, that maybe he will learn through. Uh, I, I I I could go along with Munch definitely as well. Yeah. What was that? <laughs> I thought your sign-off was going to be... Oh, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> absolutely. We can say, uh, Daniel, officially now, that season one, episode, episode one, one of Homicide Life on the Street is uh, going from red to black. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Bye.